I spent the last week in Mexico with my family. It was an awesome vacation. We were outside all the time. The only thing that could bring us inside um, was the Olympics. Uh, and, and we are Olympic junkies, and so we were really excited to watch some of the Olympics this year. Anybody else there an Olympic junkie? A few of you? Okay. Um, so if you've been watching the Olympics, uh, so here's why I love the Olympics. Uh, I feel like they are in so many ways, sort of some of the best of humanity, right? These people with this incredible dedication and drive and work ethic who are so laser-focused on these accomplishments that I'll never be able to do. And I just, I just love that idea of all of that hard work and um, diligence and everything they've done to, to reach the point where they're at. Um, I noticed something interesting about the Olympics this year. I noticed a nation I never heard of before called the ROC. Are you guys familiar with the ROC? The, the ROC is the Russian Olympic Committee, right? And even I think we watched a little bit of the parade of, of flags coming in and, and nations. And when the ROC came in, I was like, I'm not familiar with any country called ROC. So uh, you probably all know this story. I had to do a little bit of research to figure it out. Um, Turns out that in 2014, at the Winter Olympics that were in Sochi, in Russia, um, there was widespread sort of state-sponsored use of illegal drugs for the Russian Olympians. And this came out a few years later, and, you know, the the international legal process takes a while to work out. So this year, Russia is banned, and actually next year as well, from all international competition, Uh, World Cup, uh, Olympics, Winter Olympics, everything. Um, I'm happy that those who weren't involved are still able to be involved, and the ROC is an interesting thing. But what really grabbed me in that story um, was these are not the people I expect to be cheating, right? I mean, again, what I love about the Olympics is that they're, they're like the best of us, right? They're the most exemplary people who've worked their whole lives to reach this point. Um, they're not the folks I expect to be cheating, uh, and yet, what we heard was that over a thousand Russian athletes, summer, winter, and Paralympic uh, uh, com- competitors, used these illegal drugs, plus their coaches and trainers and medical staff and people doing the drug testing. It was this massive conspiracy. And I just thought, how do you get to the point where the best of us are making choices like that on that scale? Um, how do we get to the point where we are um, able to fall into such a, a series of, of sort of self-destructive behaviors? And, and, and that's exactly what happens with David, right? David is supposed to be the best of us. He's supposed to be the greatest king of Israel. And we just read um, these unbelievably horrific things that he chose to do. We read about David... Um, at least committing adultery, um, possibly also committing rape, and then to cover that up, murdering the husband of the person he cheated on. And and I want to think this morning, um, not how could that happen, because unfortunately, I think we all know that that we are capable of screwing up. I want to think, how could that have not happened? What could have gone differently um, for David and his life, and maybe what could go differently in our lives so that we can avoid going down that same road. Because if David can do it, and a thousand Olympic athletes can do it, you better believe that you and I can fall down that path as well. So what could we do differently to avoid 
what happens with David. That's my question this morning. And, and I want to suggest there are three, maybe four um, points in this story where David could have turned in a different direction. Uh, really simple. Um, there's the before, the during, and the after. And then there's the next time, right? I want to talk about the before, the during, and the after. So our story begins, and it tells us that in the spring, at the time when kings go out to war, what does David do? He stays home, right? He doesn't go. Uh, a couple of things that are interesting about this detail. Uh, so in, in ancient Israel, not unlike in our nation today, um, they had a standing army, which for them was relatively small. And then they had like the draft, right? The militia that they could rise up. So um, we're told that uh, David sent Joab with his officers. That's the standing army, okay? And all Israel with him. That's the militia. That's the draft, okay? It is acceptable for the king to sometimes send out the standing army uh, on his behalf, right? That's okay. King can do that. But when you are asking farmers to go fight for you, you're supposed to be with them. Right? In the spring, when the kings go out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, but David remained in Jerusalem. Uh, so I want to think about the before our sin. Before our sin, um, I, I think God gives us uh, these patterns and rhythms of our life, right? Where we know where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and when we get out of those patterns, when we get out of those rhythms, when we place ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, we are looking for trouble. And David is going to be quite literally on his rooftop looking for trouble. But maybe you've been through this before. Maybe you've had a season in your life where you said, yeah, you know, I, I know I'm, I really should probably head home after work and see my family, but there's this person of the opposite sex at my workplace that's just so interesting. I'm going to spend a few minutes and talk to her before I leave every week. I just want to be with her a little bit more. Or maybe you've said, um, boy, you know, I, I know I really should be um, going to church on Sunday. You guys, by the way, are here, so well done. Um, I know I should be going to church on Sunday, but there's just, you know, something else. I just, I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll get around to that later. Or you said, boy, yeah, you know, I, I know that, that God calls me to care for the poor, and I, and I see people in poverty in my midst, but I just don't have the bandwidth to help them right now, maybe some other time. And, and we get out of those rhythms and those systems. We're not where God wants us to be when He wants us to be there. Uh, and, and so I want to suggest to you um, that even before sin happens, um, where we place ourselves matters and what we're doing matters. We can sort of pre-position ourselves to turn towards God instead of away from Him. And, and the, the really simple idea is this. And that it's easier to say yes to something that's of God than no to something that's not. It's easier to say yes to something that's of God than no to something that's not. If I continually put myself in situations where I have to say no to things that are not of God, right? Uh, I've I got a drinking issue in my life, but I'm going to go out with my friends and we're going to go to the bar and they're going to all have a drink and I'll just try not to have one. Um, then I am, I'm readying myself for the fall. But if I instead look for opportunities to say yes to God uh, and say, yeah, God, I want to be where you want me to be, doing what you want me to do, uh, it, it sets my feet on a path where I never have to come into that temptation, I never have to be on the rooftop looking for trouble. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called um, Never Say No, and it's a parenting book. 
my small group read it not too long ago. And uh, it's an interesting book. It, the idea of never saying it was a hyperbole. But one of their core ideas is that um, when you're disciplining your child, um, it is so much more effective to find ways to say yes to them doing good than no to them doing bad. Uh, and, and they talk about really simple things, right? Like if you want your child to do chores, rather than saying, why aren't you doing this and being annoyed with them, make it a game, right? Make it an exciting, hey, who can clean the room the fastest? They get an extra, you know, uh, serving of dessert tonight, right? And, and, and really simply saying, hey, let's get excited about the yes so we can give out less no's, right? I really think this is a huge idea for us in our own lives. If we're going to kind of parent ourselves to say, God, where do you want me to be? Where am I supposed to be serving you and living with you right now? And can I say yes to something good that's from you so I don't find myself on the rooftop trying to say no to something bad? Okay, that's the before. Then there's the during. Um, and, and this is a really interesting moment, I think, for David in a number of ways. So he is um, in flagrante delecto, right? He is in blazing offense. Uh, he is on the rooftop. And he sees this woman. Now, where does his sin start? We can debate about whether it's sinful for him to send the army without himself. But for sure, when he sees that woman on the rooftop and he lusts after her, before anything else happens, he's gone off the rails. Right? Now, Jesus talks about this a little bit. He says, in a nutshell, um, that what happens in your heart is almost as important as what happens with your hands right? If you're angry with your brother, it's like you've committed murder already in your heart. If you lust after someone, it's like you've almost committed adultery already in your body, right? So um, first, David begins with lust, and then he, he says, let's act on this. Let's find out who she is. And he sends out some messengers, and he finds out she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why does that matter? Well, David had 30 soldiers who were his personal guard. They were like his closest defenders and friends. One of them was a guy named Uriah the Hittite. This isn't a random person in Jerusalem. This is one of David's 30 personal bodyguards. So David um, sends for Bathsheba, and it's a little unclear in the story what Bathsheba's role is. We're never told if Bathsheba thinks this is a good idea or not. Right? It's all passive voice. Um, things happen to her. Now, I have to wonder, however, that if you are um, at home as a woman alone in the ancient world and the king sends for you, how much choice do you really have? Um, how much choice do you really have? After the king has sent for me, if I say no, does he have to cover that up? What if I tell my husband? What would happen to my husband? We know what's going to happen to her husband. So I I don't know what her role was, um, but I think the blame's going to land squarely on David in a variety of ways. So David sends for Bathsheba. Uh, and then um, she, she's pregnant, right? And so he calls Uriah, and he's got this great plan. We're going to get um, Uriah to sleep with his wife, and then hopefully, you know, they'll think that he's the father, and, and it'll be great. And Uriah won't go home. It's a little bit weird, Right? I mean, Uriah's home from battle, and he will not, he won't even walk in his house. There's a reason for this. Uh, in the Old Testament, in the Torah particularly, um, the, the warriors of God are called to stay pure during times of battle, which meant that they didn't have sex, right, when they were engaged in war. And in fact, this wasn't just a rule of Torah, it was also a rule of David. 
earlier in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, David makes it clear that he expects his soldiers to stay um, uh, pure, to, to not have sex even with their spouses um, when they're on a campaign, when they're at war. Uriah is on a campaign. David is supposed to be on a campaign. By the way, could this be why David stayed home? I don't know. Uh, Uriah is on a campaign, so he will not violate Torah, and he will not violate the command of his king David. And so even though David keeps trying to send him home, he keeps sleeping in the, in the lobby. Right? I'll sleep in the lobby tonight. And so David's final choice is to get Uriah killed. As I read that story, I think, boy, there are so many points where David... Um, spirals down, right? I mean, he just, he, he sins and he goes deeper with his sin. He sees and he lusts and he goes deeper and he sends for Bathsheba and he goes, he does not find out who she is and he goes deeper and he sends for her and brings her to his home and sleeps with her. And then he goes deeper and tries to get Uriah to pretend like he slept with his wife and get Uriah to break his commandment. And then he goes deeper still and he murders his friend. And I think the reality for us is that at any one of those moments in his life or in our lives, we could choose to do something different. It's not just that once we start down that path, we're stuck on it. At any of those moments, um, David could have said, instead of doubling down on my sin, I'm going to step out of the spiral, right? I'm going to step out of this cycle of selfishness, and I'm going to try something different. And the thing that keeps him from doing it at least after the adultery, is just a fear of consequences, right? A number of years ago, um, I showed a video of a children's book called The Little White Lie. You guys remember this book, The Little White Lie? It's a great book. If you haven't read it, uh, you know, it's a children's book. It'll take you 10 seconds. Um, But it's about a guy named, I think his name is Jimmy. Uh, He's a kid and he tells a little white lie to his parents about something innocuous, right? Really small. And after he tells that little white lie, poof, this little white puffball shows up on the ground with little eyes and a face. It's the lie, right? And, and it sort of follows him around. Things are okay for a while. Telling that lie got him out of some trouble, right? Out of some work he didn't want to do, which was great. But then um, somebody starts noticing there's a puffball around, and so he, he has to tell another lie to cover it up. Remember what happens when he tells another lie? It's bigger, right? Uh, And as the story goes on, Jimmy has to tell more and more lies to cover up his original lie, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until finally this enormous cuddly puffball is now the size of his house and is pretty darn scary, and he can't hide it anymore. And he finally goes to his parents and he says, I got to confess what I did. Remember what happens in that story? That that ball just disappears, just gone. Uh, I, I think... Um, it's not quite so simple for David, but the reality is our fear of consequences keeps us going deeper into sin, right? Our fear of consequences keep us on that downward spiral, and the consequences only grow, right? Adultery is really bad. Murder is even worse. And so if we can simply say, God, I want to step out of the spiral, I want to step out of the spiral, and in this moment, however far down this path I am, I'm willing to come clean, right? I'm willing to to reconcile with you and whoever, whatever the cost might be, because I know waiting will be more costly still. Stepping out of that spiral can change our lives, right? It can can dramatically change our lives. Uh, Just because we've begun doesn't mean even during our sin, 
we, we can't make a difference. So uh, before our sin, we have to figure out how we can say yes to God and avoid having to put ourselves in situations of saying no to sin. And then during our sin, we have to step out of the spiral and accept our consequences. But that's not the end of the story. Because there's also an after. What happens after our sin? We didn't get to read all of this in the story of David. But if you keep going and read chapter 12, you'll hear a little bit about what Amanda talked about today, about David's confession. But, but here's what strikes me as really significant. We, we've talked about the three kings of Israel, right? Saul and David. We'll talk about Solomon soon. Um, Saul gets rejected as king, remember? Because he wouldn't kill all the Amalekites and he kept some of their money. It seems like what David did is at least as bad, if not worse. I mean, David didn't just hoard some money that he took from his enemies. David committed adultery, maybe committed rape, definitely committed murder against one of his close friends. Why hasn't David rejected his king? I'll tell you, it's not because David's a good guy. And it's not because David is um, a man after God's own heart. It's because God made a promise to David before this. We mentioned this earlier. Remember right after the Ark of the Covenant comes in Jerusalem? God makes a covenant with David. He says, I will never take my love from you. I will build your house for you. Your son will sit on the throne after you. I'll never take my love from him. And that promise is special. Let's be absolutely clear, right? I mean, nobody else in the whole Old Testament other than maybe Abraham gets a promise like that. It's special because he's the king of Israel, right? It, and he's this great king of Israel. But, but here's the deal. After David, there's a king who is even greater than he. And that king's name is Jesus. And that king makes a promise to us that just as David could never lose God's love, so we can never lose God's love. No matter what we do, no matter how far we run, no matter how deep our sin goes or how much we spiral down, there is no point where we cannot come back. There is no point where God says, I'm giving up on you. Instead, God says, I have made a promise that will never be broken. You always have a place in my home. Because of our covenant with Christ, it's never too late to turn back to God. But here's the deal. Uh, we never run out of grace. We can run out of time. Uh, the Russian uh, doping situation was partly brought to life because there was a guy named, um, I'm sure I'm going to say his name wrong, Grigory uh, Rodchenkov. Grigory Rodchenkov. And Rodchenkov was very highly placed in the Russian doping scheme, um, a, a major player, and helped a lot of this um, cheating happen. And as the story slowly became more known, um, he decided to become a whistleblower. And in 2016, he fled Russia for the United States and turned over everything he knew about what Russia had been doing. Uh, and he went into the Witness Protection Program, and there's actually a documentary about this called Icarus, which is kind of interesting. Um, here's the deal. He made it just in time. There were two other compatriots of his um, in Russia who had been highly placed and involved in the doping scheme. And when it came to light what had happened, 
Both of them died mysteriously within a couple of months of that story breaking. You can never run out of grace, but you can run out of time. And so, I don't know where you are in, in your season of life. I don't know if maybe things are going pretty well and you feel like you're humming with God and you just need to make sure uh, that you keep saying yes to the things of God so you don't find yourself at home when the kings are supposed to be at war. Or I don't know if maybe you're in a season where it feels like you're stuck in some patterns of sin that you're really having a hard time breaking out of and you've got to ask Christ for help to step out of the spiral or maybe you look at your life and you say, man, I have messed up so many things. I have, I have done so many selfish things in my life. I don't know how I could ever be forgiven. Christ says, you can't lose my forgiveness. You never run out of grace, but you can run out of time. So make time today to come back to God and say, hey, um, like David, I want to repent of what I've done. I want to come back to you. Uh, I am so sorry, and I love you, and, and I want to be your child again. And we never lose that window. So uh, I told you there were four things. Uh, the fourth one we'll talk about next week. Uh, the fourth one is the next time. Right? So there's the before, there's the during, there's the after, and then there's the next time. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed the end of our scripture. The end of our scripture, David takes Bathsheba into his home and makes her his wife. Uh, and this is so key for us. If we want to avoid um, the patterns of sin in our lives, repentance means turning away from them. We can't keep doing what we've been doing, right? Because if, if we don't make any effort to change, then our confession doesn't mean that much. You can't murder somebody um, so you can sleep with their wife and then when they're dead, bring their wife into your home, right? Doesn't work. Uh, and so um, it's not just our call to confess our sin, but to really work at turning away from it. Not that we have to be perfect, because um, only Jesus um, can get us to that point, but that we are called uh, to work to start anew with Him, to have a new life, a new spirit, and a new heart. And Christ promises that if we ask for it, He will give it. So today, um, we're going to sing a hymn called Created Me a Clean Heart, and I want to ask that to be our prayer for ourselves as we say, God, wherever we are in that journey, uh, we want a clean heart. We want to be wholly focused on the things of you, and we know that even if we're at the end, uh, we can never run out of grace, and so we thank you, God, for giving us this time to come back to you. Thanks be to him. Amen.